Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, I'm Rosamund Irwin, a journalist at the Sunday Times, and welcome to the Intelligence Squared podcast. You can sign up for regular updates about podcasts and other events at intelligencesquared.com. I'm here with Tom Whipple, science editor at the Times and author of X and Y, The Rules of Attraction, Why Gender Still Matters. So, Tom, do you want to tell me why um, this idea inspired you? Um, so... I started writing this book um, back when it seemed uncontroversial in the dim distant days of 2016. Um, and its premise was that I was looking at differences between the sexes in how they approach sex. Um, the idea that there's a point where, you know, whatever we can have, we can have the arguments about should women be, you know, are they less likely to be CEOs, less likely to be computer scientists and men less less likely to be predisposed to be nurses. That's, that's not something I was interested in. I was looking at where I thought biology really met behaviour, which is in sex. Um, and weirdly, it seems to have found it sort of surfed its way onto a zeitgeist purely, purely by chance, um, because a lot of people are talking about sex and a lot of people are talking about gender. Um, and it's found itself in its own odd way being I guess a little bit controversial because I'm saying that there are fundamental ways in which men and women approach sex differently um, and that that makes sense, a lot of sense from an evolutionary perspective. Um, and then I've explored that with knob gags. <laughs> OK, so let's go back to the beginning, right? When you open the book, you talk about this um, study that's been done at, at various points, probably over the last sort of 50 years? Uh, 40, 40, 40 years. It's 40th anniversary at the moment. Ah, OK. So over the last 40 years. And it's when you get um, you get a man and a woman, uh, probably young and attractive, one imagines, to go up to people in the street and ask if they would like to go to bed with them. Obviously, people of the opposite sex. Um, what I thought reading it is that... It actually, there's one little nuance that I really thought about, which is that um, this, and I can't remember who said this, but there's a quote um, that I'm now stealing uh, that was, "What men are, what women are afraid of, is that a man might kill them, and what what uh, men are afraid of is that a woman might laugh at them." And I thought, reading it, I thought I wouldn't be brave enough to go up. Uh, to men in the street, because I would worry, even in the context of this study, that that was quite a dangerous thing to do, an unsafe thing to do. 
Um, but anyway, and, and then you, you do get a man who turns up at the door of the professor annoyed that he has been involved in this study and, you know, he didn't get his expectation of sex that was invited yes. to him. So I thought that was, that was my immediate reaction to it was, oh, my God, I'd be terrified to do that. But anyway, um, do you want to explain what, what the results of actually doing yes. this test so, were? So, um, so this is... Men and women, um, they are chosen to be, in general, averagely attractive. Um, psychology students, poor, poor psychology students, are always used for these kinds of experiments. And uh, in the latest iterations, you get an entire class that would be rated on their attractiveness, and then they would carefully, scientifically choose the ones bang in the middle of mediocrity. And then they will go up to people, members of the opposite sex, and they'll say, I've noticed you around. I find you very attractive. Would you go to bed with me? And you managed to say that it, not in the intonation of the song. Without singing. famously the, ripped off that line. The 1998 touch and go hit, would you? Um, and then they got the responses. And so men, about two thirds of men, when approached by an averagely attractive woman, uh, will say yes. Um, the third who say no generally apologise. They'll say, oh, I'm terribly sorry, I've got my girlfriend coming tonight, or now's not convenient, but should we try another time? Um, and then always the uh, women who are approached say no. Um, they get 0% response, and they don't apologise when they say no. Um, and so... This experiment's been done many times. Um, it's been done in different contexts, and you generally get the with nuances. You get the same results. Um, and now, one of the, as you mentioned, what one of the aspects of this is: what are you measuring? So, one of the things you're measuring, and the things that an evolutionary biologist would say you're measuring, is costs of sex. Um, so there's absolutely nothing in men's previous lives. This is what I love about it. nothing in their lives that would have told them this is a plausible offer. But they're going to take a punt on it because why not? And with men, there is an element of why not to sex. Uh, this is a costless procedure for a man or, you know, the costs are extremely low. Um, for women, this is not a costless procedure. This this can result in nine months. And then after those nine months, the thing that's most likely to kill you as a woman between the ages of, you know, 15 and 45, um, and then looking after the body thing. So obviously women are going to be a bit more reticent and sex is going to be a lot more complicated for them. But obviously there's another aspect to this, which is fear. Um, if a woman suddenly gets approached by a man saying... I want to have sex with you. This is not a neutral in terms of threateningness um, event. And so that's another explanation for what's going on. But it remains, for many people, an interesting primer on the beginnings of how uh, biology must interact with our behaviour and how we look at things. Um, and the interesting thing is it's been repeated on Tinder um, there's a computer scientist who created an averagely attractive woman, an averagely attractive man, and they went out, and if you imagine Tinder's a computer game, they completed it. They swiped everyone. They went into New York, London, Paris, and said, I am open to offers from every member of Tinder who is looking for men or who is looking for women. And then they waited to see the results come in, and the female bot uh ended up being propositioned by a large proportion of the single male population of the West. Um, for the male bot, it was a slow, slow trickle. And when they looked at the res responses they got, they found that 90% of them were from men. 
Um, so, which is, I guess, a validation of it without the fear element. But it's all a lot more complicated than that as well, obviously. Mm. But I think a lot of women would relate to uh, being sent messages on Tinder that are essentially, hi, uh, want to have sex tonight, essentially. <laughs> Sometimes euphemistically said. But um, but that certainly is an experience of a lot of women on, on that on on the app and and that's what i think so so i i think these these online things accentuate um the awfulness of dating um because you've removed this human element that softens softens everyone and yeah the the guy did the tinder debate spoke of it as a cycle of despair for the men and then just constant harassment for the women um but you find i i I don't want to i'm i'm not going to sit here and say that women aren't shallow in this as well um because the great thing about online dating is you get all of this amazing data and you can see how people um, make decisions. And because you've got because you've got the whole world open to you as a woman um, and as a man, you can be extremely discriminating. And you find that women will not they, 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 they came up with this rule, it's sort of the the woman in heels rule. Women will have a hard cutoff for any man who is shorter than them in heels. And you can see it in the data. It drops off a cliff. Now, I'm sure in real life, a lot of those women would meet meet the man and find, well, he's lovely. We're, we're sitting down. We've met sitting down. We've had a lovely chat. It's not till we stand up and we think, oh, God, he's almost the same height as me, but I quite like him. But you don't need to do that online. You can say, well, I've got the whole world, so I'm just going to I've got to exclude someone, so I'm going to exclude them all like this. But my theory about Tinder, and I'll give my own story here, but I think you over-exclude. So on my uh, first date with my now fiancé, I said to him, as a joke, oh, why didn't we meet on Tinder? And he said, oh, I don't know. And I said, well, I do. You're outside my age range. And the point being, because you could only discriminate by location and age. I over, you know, I sort of thought, well, it'd be very convenient if they live locally, wouldn't it? So you do a small <laughs> circle. And then I thought, well, hang on, you know, I don't really want them being over 35. You know, so but but of course, you're quite right that when you sit down with someone, that stuff evaporates. That doesn't matter, does it? It's not what you're looking for. But one thing I really thought we should um, explore was what the women said in response to the man saying, do you want to go to bed with me? Which was a feeling from a lot of them of, you've got to do more work than that. It's not enough just to sort of say, hey, let's go to bed tonight. You've actually got to do what would be thought of as courtship. Yeah. And this is, again, I mean, evolutionary psychologists love this because this is a proof of the paradigm that in you know loads of species you'll get the males will bring sort of courtship gifts or prepare nests or have some sort of proof of commitment and investment um, before that. Because the last thing you want as a woman, particularly a woman in our past, is to find out that you're raising a kid on your own. Um, That's probably fatal for the kid. Um, It's terrible for you. So you want this sort of this proof of commitment. And that's what, yeah, some of the rejections they said, oh, come on, at least sort of, you know, bring me flowers or pretend you're interested in me as a human being. Um, Because of an awareness that there's this massive imbalance in what you're bringing to the sexual game, um, that a woman is bringing this considerably greater vulnerability, which is she might get pregnant. Um, and that sort of changes everything. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's, that's, that's in a large way what, what this found. And this experiment remains controversial because it doesn't, of course, it doesn't tell us everything about female sexuality. Um, and there's, 
people get quite annoyed about this idea of this coy, chaste, choosy paradigm, when actually you find that there are situations in which women have plenty of extramarital affairs, um, that they're promiscuous for lots of other reasons. Um, But I I think few people who look at it would deny that there's still this fundamental paradigm that obviously they're the ones getting pregnant. Mm. Um, here's a sense I never thought I'd utter. Let's talk testicles, <laughs> uh, because this is something that you explore in the book by the prism of the silver mountainback gorilla, which has very small testicles, correct me if I'm wrong here, and I think the chimpanzee, which has enormous testicles. Yeah. And yeah. where do men fall on the so we have, so the So I've generally, I've, I've, I've been quite careful in animal analogies certainly with behavior because i think there's only so much you can learn from animals and you can prove almost anything from the animal you choose um but there is a pretty good rule in um biology which is that testicle size tells you very little about the man but quite a lot about the women or about the females um and this is of course where the the coy chaste paradigm of women falls down because testicle size is about sperm competition um if you're a gorilla and you've got a nice harem of female gorillas that you have won in battle from the other gorillas um you're not worried about them having sex with other gorillas as a consequence of that you don't need to make lots of sperm because your sperm is not going to be put crudely competing whereas chimpanzees are having sex all the time they're having sex with lots of people they've got big balls because they're making a lot of sperm because their sperm is competing after the sexual event whereas gorillas are competing before the sexual event sexual event good god (laughs) (laughs) um now where do humans fit on this um well, for for those who claim there's, there's there's a school of thought um that we all used to live in free loving matriarchal polyamorous uh societies like bonobos um if that was the case we'd have far bigger balls. Um there's another school of thought that says oh we're made from monogamy one one woman one man we always lived these sort of uh, these, these chase paired up lifestyles. Well, if that was the case we would have far smaller balls. We have not chimpanzee balls, not gorilla balls, but we definitely have the balls that indicate that there are some promiscuous women around there. Mm. So, of course, we've talked about the risk for a woman, which is getting pregnant, but there's a sort of parallel risk for a man there, which is that he's bringing up a child that is not his own. And, of course, there have been plenty of studies over the years that have shown a surprising number of men find themselves, perhaps a surprising number of men find themselves in that situation. How does that become a factor um, biologically speaking. So, yeah, these, um, this is one of the things. There was a little bit of a revolution in evolutionary psychology about 30, 40 years ago when f- female, I mean, w- women evolutionary psychologists said, hang on, you're sort of, all of this is about men. All of this is about men competing and the pressures on men whilst women just sit there and wait for them to compete and do all these things. But actually there's, there is, as you say, there's a parallel asymmetric but really powerful thing that a woman has, which is a woman is always 100% certain that her offspring is hers. Um, and a man does not have this uh, does not have this certainty. And you will find, I mean, there will be studies where you'll find that uh, the extent to which a man is sure about his paternity correlates to the amount of investment that he puts into that baby. Um, and when there's uncertainty... You know, not not surprisingly, if we think about it, if you think your wife might be having an affair, um, there's more reticence about how much they're 
putting into looking after their kids. Um, there's a lovely theory, and it remains a theory. The experimental evidence isn't great. I'm not sure how you get it. Um, but from this brilliant um, uh, primatologist called Sarah Hardy, um, who argues that in some circumstances, women are... It's a useful tactic for them to make men uncertain about who the father of their child is. Um, so the example she used was from primates, where when you get a new alpha male turn up, he will kill all of the babies um, which have been inside by the previous alpha male. In those circumstances, it could be a very good idea to have a... Um, to have an uncertainty about whether he might have actually sired some of those. Um, now, how does that relate to humans? Well, we don't we don't have a situation where alpha males turn up and kill all of our babies. Um, but she argued that, I mean, if you if you watch Jeremy Kyle and you see um, these you know women who have continual paternity tests, or there's examples where you know they've been through five and the the, the right culprit still still hasn't arrived. Um, it's exceptionally easy to sneer and start talking about societal breakdown, or, or worse, be patronising and you know uh, pity these poor women. But if you look at it through this different paradigm, which is actually there quite cunningly ensuring investment from lots of different men in this scenario where they're living with not many resources, uh, then you can start seeing differently. And weirdly, there is a parallel for that, where if you look at some tribes where there aren't many resources, um, they have societal structures where there's this thing called partable paternity, where there are several men who genuinely think they're the father, where any man who has sex with a woman whilst she is pregnant is believed to be part father. And obviously, it's biologically incorrect. But for the woman, it means that if one of them dies, that's not catastrophic, and that there's several men who are prepared to look after her and look after her offspring. I mean, obviously, you can get too reductive about this. But it's, uh, it's a completely different paradigm to look at as well as the one about, oh, well, this is, you know, all man has to invest his 10 minutes, bit of romantic talk, and away he goes. Mm. Um, you mentioned Jeremy Carl there. I thought I'd, I'd move us on to the other, uh, perhaps, uh, maybe not as classy TV show as, uh, as, as maybe not as highbrow, um, which is Love Island, um, which obviously... Uh, in a slightly unfortunate way, has dominated the conversation uh, at many water coolers this summer. Um, I'm, I've been perpetually surprised to discover who watches it, which uh, includes some CEOs of major companies um, who would probably not want me uh, mentioning that here. But anyway, why do you think it is that we are, and, and how does it relate in a sort of biological way? Um, why is it that the nation's become a bit obsessed with it? And what does it actually does it actually tell us in anything interesting scientifically? Um, I think no one's surprised that the nation would be obsessed by sex, um, and this is fundamentally about sex and uh, voyeurism in the broader sense. I don't think we're actually watching them having sex. Um, I mean, scientifically, it is fascinating. I know, I know um, biologists who treat it as a nature documentary involving humans. Um, it's not a, uh, a sort of representation of, I guess, our unfettered sexuality because there's so many other things involved. There's, there's obviously money involved. You're aware of this incentive, this strange sort of incentivization structure where you need to couple up. Um, there's enforced mon monogamy, uh, which is... 
in a way, sort of what we do in our society. Um, but uh, if, if it was some sort of return to our ancestral island existence, then I think you'd expect some of them to maybe be a bit more promiscuous and also maybe even maybe even after time take a couple of wives. Um, it's a bit like this. There's this thing in science called the Skinner box um, created by this um, uh, animal behaviorist called uh, Skinner who would put in different inputs and outputs into this box that had got a rat into it and see if you could change how the rat performs and sort of force its its um behavior i would like i would think of love island as a skinner box for humans um and in that sense it's a uh, it's very very good fun but uh i don't know how moral it is <laughs> one thing this year slightly tapped into i mean originally there was a there's an nhs doctor on it and he started out as a hero and it's that thing of you know if you hang around long enough as a hero you become a villain and and by the end having been initially rejected by all the women which i do think is is something we should we should explore the the fact that um even though we no longer have societies that are well most people are not in societies that are polygamous more men end up left on the shelf um, but but he ends up initially rejected and then eventually becomes uh, the reject uh, of women. Um, and 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 then he gets all the criticism that comes with that. What explain a bit about why it is that there are more men who are not deemed fit to be partners and how that happens in a numbers game. Um, so sometimes it's sometimes it's completely obvious. Um, there's. If we lived in polygamous societies, it'd be completely clear that obviously, you know, if the emperor has got 500 wives, then that means there's 499 men who have not got wives. And of um, course, more men are born, although then more yeah, die more, before it's, I mean, it's, Yes, so uh, roughly, roughly 50-50, but yeah, the, the, there's, there's, there's that as well. Um, what, and this, this, this is absolutely crucial, so just a, a, a slight digression. So the... Um, the the man who has probably sired, possibly sired the most uh, babies um, ever is a guy called Moulay Ishmael the Bloodthirsty. Um, the great thing about Moulay Ishmael the Bloodthirsty is, first of all, it you really had to go great guns in 17th century Morocco to get the title, the Bloodthirsty. Um, and he definitely did. He would decorate his towns with the bunting made of the ears of his victims. He would... Uh, he, my, my, in fact, my favourite anecdote about him, although this might say more about my views towards cats, is um, whenever the emperor's cats displeased him, he got the... Um, royal executioner to drag them through the streets and scourge them and then say, thus my master treats knavish cats. Um, there was a visiting French friar who claimed that he had uh, he had produced 1,200 children, or rather 600 boys. He obviously strangled the girls to death. Um, 600 boys um, by the time he visited. Weirdly, it's a semi-validated statistic because he was also obviously anti-Semitic and whenever he gave birth, including to a child that he was going to strangle, he celebrated by raising attacks on the Jews and you have 1,200 levies in the Meknes, um, in the Meknes records. Um, and now, correspondingly, the figure for a woman is probably about 30, 35 would be the most that a woman's ever, ever, ever produced um, and obviously done so in poverty as opposed to in riches. Um, so there's this difference in, the, and it's called reproductive variance. Um, so f the most women would produce a, a small number of children 
some men would produce loads and loads and loads. And for the ones who produce loads and loads and loads, um, others would produce zero. Um, and this is something that's called the Bateman gradient. Um, and you would think, right, this doesn't apply to our society now. Um, we have socially enforced monogamy. We have rules which say that, you know, you're not going to be a bigamist. You're not going to be married to lots of wives. You cannot be Moulay Ishmael the bloodthirsty today. Um, and that's sort of true. Obviously, you can have, you know, you can have wives outside of marriage or whatever. But uh, the strange thing is that we still manage it. Successful men still have effectively a harem, but they do so sequentially rather than concurrently. So you don't notice um, they will have several wives over the course of their lives. But crucially, those wives will always be fertile. Um, so if you look at men in the For Forbes top 100, their second wife is on average, I think, a decade younger than them. Their third wife is on average a couple of decades younger than them. So they're effectively, and I'm sorry, this is there's no way to talk about this without being sort of crude, uh, you know, evolution junk. They're effectively monopolising the fertility of those women um, for an extended period of time. It, to all intents and purposes, they have had a harem because if you're married to one woman, as I intend to be for all of my life, um, then you will get old together, and your collective fertile period will be the same because you've only got your wife. Um, whereas if you are a pop star, a CEO, whatever, who's uh, very rich and has got younger women, then you've extended your fertile period till death, um, even when your first wife has long ago gone through the menopause. Mm. And how does that... Um, I mean, in that situation, that leaves some men excluded from reproduction and presumably in our society also from um, marriage potentially or, or long-term relationships. And what happens there then to that group of men? Well, this is – so this is um, – J Jordan Peterson got in trouble for going down this route and uh, having read his quotes, I can completely see why. Um, I'm going to be slightly careful about this. Um, but uh, there is loads of research that shows, first of all, that humans are naturally polygamous. Um, that if you look at biological cues like testicles, if you look at um, uh, if, if you look at the size difference cues, if, if you look at things like um, just hunter-gatherer societies, you find that the majority of them are polygamous, mildly polygamous. I mean, you can't in a hunter-gatherer society you can't build up the kind of wealth. Uh, or indeed find the number of women, that means you've got 500 wives. But, you know, you might find that the chief is two. Um, and we have moved away from that. And that's a brilliant thing because it seems to be just better for society in every way. So let's start with the obvious group, which is the men who don't have wives. Um, young men without wives commit more crimes. Um, they're more violent. Uh, they're just more unpleasant and they are continually searching for wives. And I think that you can view, um, and this is in absolutely no way a transferal of moral responsibility, but I think you can view ISIS as basically the phenomenon of men who haven't had sex. Um, it's a bunch of angry virgins. And then you can also view things like Boko Haram, kidnapping girls, ISIS, kidnapping Yazidi women as exactly what would have happened with war bands of these unpleasant sexless men. Um, 
so that's that's sort of obvious. And if you look at uh, we, you have se- semi-natural experiments, you can look at um, China, where there's skewed ratios of sex because of selective abortion, mm, um, and India as and well. India. Marcia sends missing women. Yeah, exactly. And you can look at then you can look at Indian states that have different ratios and see that violence is higher, murder is higher in those where you have more men. Um, so that's obvious. It's obviously bad for you and probably bad for society if you haven't got all, if, you, if you're in that situation, if you're one of the missing men. It's awful for children. Um, you find that, that children are less well looked after. Um, they're more likely to die in accidents when you've got this sort of semi-collective upbringing that you have um, with with polygamy. Um, it's it's bad for wives. Um, I mean, they don't get on. You get these amazing sort of anthropological accounts of when a new wife arrives in the chief's compound and there's sort of fighting for days. And I mean, this this view of women as something that doesn't compete with each other is just, I mean, when you realise that they'd have been competing for resources, for attention, for all of these things, and when you see what happens in these anthropological accounts, it's clearly nonsense, these sort of vicious fights that go on. Um, it's Incredibly, it's bad for the husbands as well. Um, there's an amazing study which was done you know, uh, w- on modern men who have more than one wives, wife in the Middle East, and you find that they um, are f- far more likely to die of heart attacks. And the more wives they have, the more likely they're to die of heart attacks, which is particularly interesting because for monogamy, it's the other way around. Men are far healthier when they've got a wife. I mean, it's not, it's not actually that necessarily better for the wife to not be single, but it's definitely better for the man to not be single. But that, that paradigm completely changes when you've got mon- uh, polygamy. And why is that? St- I mean, the stress? The... <laughs> the stress, you've got to run all these separate households. You've got to make sure you've got enough money for them. Um, I mean, I, d- I don't find it remotely surprising. Hmm. One thing um, that you look at as well is obviously the role of testosterone. And we tend to associate testosterone with aggression. But your point is that actually it's also uh, something that encourages you to compete. Um, do you want to explore that? This seems to be um, – so in – I mean, in animals, it's completely clear if you, you know, cut off their – if you castrate them, then – they, they they stop fighting and they stop doing all these things. There is so there's there's some evidence that um, it's in humans it's a lot more nuanced than that because our society is a lot more nuanced than that. Um, there's there was a study on boys um, which which looked at what happened when they got more testosterone since it was going through puberty and found that in some it resulted in badder behaviour and, um, and more violent behaviour, but in others it involved it resulted resulted in sort of better behaviour. Um, and it correlated more to status-seeking um, and the desire to seek status. Um, now, I'll just say you can get very reductive about this and you can start saying, well, men have more testosterone. Testosterone makes you get status. Therefore, women won't be competing to in the job market and it's not surprising they're all not C- CEOs. Um, I-, I think that's definitely taking it too far. But... Um, I mean, testosterone is clearly important for the for the book. I I I took some. I got some. I bought some illegal testosterone on the dark web. Um, I probably didn't take it long enough to see the effects. But uh, it's really interesting if you chat to uh, women who've transitioned to be men, um, and I interview one from that and take the testosterone, and then basically say they can't. They just can't stop thinking about sex or 
for wanking. Um, and it's, I, I think a lot of men might read that and think, oh, yeah, that's, that's what being 14 was like. <laughs> that's, that, that's what it was. That's what the surge of testosterone was. There's another line from trans men that I thought, well, I found rather upsetting to read, but it was uh, from the from the trans man that you interview, which is that he suddenly found himself sort of unable to be patient with female friends exploring problems, talking, um, and it plays to that stereotype, that unfortunate stereotype that um, men aren't terribly good at listening to women's problems because women want to talk about it and men want to give them a solution, and, and the woman doesn't want to have a solution imposed upon her, and. I wondered how true you think that version is. So I put in, obviously, I interviewed, um, I interviewed this uh, man now who changed changed his gender, and uh, he said that he said that he was no longer interested in listening and chatting continually about all of these problems, and he, I mean, he very much came up with this Mars and Venus paradigm. Um, I'm saying paradigm far too much, um, but. I don't know. Um, I put that in. That was his experience. And that's what I, I put in. You've got to accept. Obviously, you've got to accept there's so much else going on if you're changing to be a man. Um, and it's impossible. I mean, you couldn't create a better placebo for gender than this process of changing everything about you to become a different sex. So I put that in. That was very much his experience. Um I don't know how much you can generalise that. And throughout, I mean, there's always this problem of people say, oh, is it nature, is it nurture? And the two are just Im- impossible to separate, And uh, both in practice, certainly, but also in theory. They, they, they play off each other. They're a loop. They reinforce and they can be changed and you can change one and affect the other. So I don't know, but it was very, very interesting. Actually, the thing that I found more interesting um, – was that he said he was no longer affected by the cold in the same way. Ah, uh, yes. And we know, and this is something where it's you know unambiguous that women feel the cold more in offices, and this is yep. uh, why we should have gender-segregated offices. <laughs> I think that would be a terrible idea, but offices should be warmer because they're obviously a set for a man in a suit who doesn't feel the, the cold much. And so women sit there shivering at their desks. Even in the summer, I'm shivering at my desk sometimes. Um, but yes, it, it, there's a clear thing there, isn't there, that, that women do seem to feel the cold more. Um, and perhaps they should now, you know, adjust offices to recognise that probably about half the staff there are women now. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. 
The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Um, I wondered on the, when you look at the trans community, so um, I think in Cordelia Fine's book, um, del- delusions of gender yeah. I think it's called um, she interviewed a trans woman who said um, and, uh, something along the lines of uh, that, uh, she, her argument was that people assumed because she was a woman that there were certain things she wasn't good at and so she found so she said uh, because people assumed I couldn't park I couldn't do parallel parking oddly unable to you know i became unable to parallel park so i wonder because we've got such a complex society and a society that is so gendered if some of this stuff is what we impose upon people so the and admittedly anybody who is transitioning clearly has a lot going on in their life that might make them rather impatient to irrelevant problems what they see as insignificant problems of their friends um in comparison with what they're going through but at the same time, some of it presumably is a cultural yeah. question. Yeah, and I think um, it, it, it has to be. Of course it has to be. Um, and I think a good example of – so where I would part company with Cordelia Fine is – and she wouldn't characterise herself this way, um, but I think there's an element of blank slate there where uh, – her presumption would be there isn't a difference at all in anything um, and everything is culturally imposed. Um, in this book, I've essentially restricted myself to sex, um, where I think there clearly, clearly has to be a significant difference because the pressures are so different on men and women. And if we haven't evolved to respond to that, then evolution doesn't work. Um, now, a good example of how culture can change these and accentuate these um, is the example I used of Tinder and online dating, where I think it's clear that something that might be 55% this, 45% that in the real world becomes 90% this, 10% that in the online world. Um, Culture can change a, a lot of things and it can take real differences and massively exaggerate them. Now, I don't know about parallel parking. Um... I would be surprised if there's a really good 
reason why men or women should be better than that, although there are differences in spatial uh, awareness. Um, one of the examples I used in this book, um, or rather some of the people that I spoke to, that makes me think that there are other things going on and that gender is a lot more interesting than um, people who would like to deny things like that, um, is I spoke to two um, identical twins. Um, one of them was a lesbian and one of them was straight. Now, that's fascinating in and of itself because they've had the same nature, they've had the same nurture. Um, and they were talking about their... Now, they were part of a study where the scientists wanted to see if you could tell from an early age. Um, so they brought in childhood photos and people who didn't know which was which was basically asked to point to the lesbian, point to the straight one. Um, and it really wasn't hard. Um, you know, there was a lot of dungarees. Um, there was a lot of playing with action man dolls versus Barbies. Um, and then I chatted to them and the straight one said that she was always jealous of the lesbian one because she seemed to get on more with her boyfriends and they just wanted to talk to her about computer games and football. And it was sort of all of these gender stereotypes um, that I didn't, I, I, I didn't go into elsewhere in the book, but here they were and they were being happily volunteered. Um, now, obviously, you can explain that. You can say, you can come up with an explanation and you can say, well, look, they must have been treated differently by their parents in some way. And then this became accentuated and then one of them ended up lesbian um, and was doing all these gender atypical things. At some point, I think the, that sort of explanation becomes too convoluted. Um, and I think you're denying that there's something very interesting going on with gender. Um, if you just say this is all society. But we might latch on to an identity that feels available. So um, when you're a child, you know, you're aware of certain boxes. I mean, I felt I'm the third child. I've got a brother and a sister. And I was very much sure that I was, you know, what was then, people don't really use this word now, but a tomboy. I was very much, you know, I had, I had my sister who I thought of as very feminine, my brother who was quite sort of stereotypical, and I was going to play with the swords too. And I think I was aware that that was an identity that, that was there and one that was felt free and you want to be different, you know, you want to define yourself differently. Um, now, I'm only going on an anecdotal because it's just me that I'm talking about here and I don't don't suggest that it says something broader. But, but you know, I had read The Famous Five and there was George and she seemed so much more appealing than the other. I think, ah, yeah, yeah, Anne's Anne's I don't know. She's dreadful, Anne's isn't she? Terrible. So there was an identity that was there culturally for me to adopt and it felt like quite an obvious one from quite a young age. Um, so I do think that, that part of the limitation might be that, that we're only kind of aware of certain ways you can be and one might seem much more attractive than another and you kind of mould yourself around things and perhaps when you get a bit older you can be a bit freer with your sense of identity. But certainly when you're a child there don't seem many ways to be. Oh, I think I think you're absolutely correct and uh, to be to be completely clear, like this is not a... This is not an argument for girls shouldn't climb trees or, you know, boys shouldn't play with dolls. Um, but in this wider study, uh, I spoke to other participants in it and they had similar stories, um, other identical twins with uh, discordant sexualities. Um, and the study found that you can tell them apart from sort of the age of two or three. Um, now, I don't think when you've got this thing that the sexuality is different, so something, something fundamentally different 
gender-wise is going on, which as it pertains to sexuality, it's also going on differently in terms of other manifestations of traditional gender roles. Um, none of this means if you, you know, if you if you're a boy and you play with dolls, or a girl and you play with guns, that you must be gay. Um, but you're seeing these two things going along together. Now, yeah, you can. This is not proof. This is not proof that it's nature. It's not proof that it's nurture. Um, but I think there's an element of complexity and interest in these in the world that gets denied when you simply blithely say, oh, well, you know, that's obviously societal conditioning. Of course, not every society is like our own in this regard. And, you know, those boxes that we have might be different elsewhere. And obviously, that is something that you explore in the book. So tell me a bit about that. Um, well, the... So I think I think you're probably referring to the fafafine. Um, yeah, I wasn't daring to say the word, to be honest. <laughs> um, I find the fafafine absolutely fascinating because it shows, again, the futility, to my mind, of talking about nature versus nurture. So this is a group in Samoa um, living in a traditional society who are a third gender. And you get third genders popping up all over the world. Um, but let's home on this one because they're interesting they're the ones that's been studied um so they're they're men um there is a female analog of this as well called the fatatime or uh, i think let's stick with the men because i can definitely pronounce fafafine um and they the word means in the manner of a woman um and they dress up uh often in dresses and they are behave in a more traditionally feminine way and they help out around the house. Now, the really interesting thing about this is Samoa doesn't really have homosexuality. It has fafafine, which pop up in about the proportion you would expect homosexuality to pop up in a normal society, uh, or normal society in the West, um, which uh, the people who study them uh, would argue is possibly an abnormal society. Um, I, the, there's a guy called Paul Vasey who is himself gay and a Canadian academic um, who has spent a lot of time studying the Fafafine because he considers that to be the ancestral form of homosexuality um, and thinks that if he was if he'd been left to his own devices he'd have ended up being a Fafafine but instead he's a he's a gay man in the West um, who has had he would argue his femininity suppressed by our society. Um, whether or not that's true is slightly slightly relevant to the argument, which is he is using them as a way to try to work out why homosexuality exists. Um, so homosexuality, I think if you sat someone down and said, this is how evolution works, and you said, what is the one thing you predict? And what you predict is that a trait that meant that people didn't reproduce or reproduced at an extremely low rate would disappear. And yet homosexuality is there. Um, it's there throughout the animal kingdom. We can get onto gay penguins if you want later. Um, and we know it's biological because uh, we, we know it's genetic because you can see that identical twins are, notwithstanding what we were saying previously, identical twins are more likely to both be homosexual than non-identical twins, as in their shared genetics seems to be contributing to the homosexual trait. Um, we know there's some other very weird um, biological things going on. If you have more older brothers, you're more likely to be homosexual. And just as I was publishing this book, a piece of research seemed to explain that by a build-up of protein that happens with each pregnancy with boys. Um, and we obviously know that there's going to be cultural aspects that will influence it but he wanted to see how it's persisted how is it that this trait that doesn't reproduce 
or causes people not to reproduce, maintains itself in the population. And his theory with the Fafafine is that there's more than one way to reproduce. I can reproduce by having sex with my wife and making a baby who has 50% of my genes. Um, but my nephews and nieces have a quarter of my genes. If the existence of me ensures that more nieces and nephews are born, then that is a way of vicariously reproducing. As far as my genes are concerned, they don't care what vessel is uh, what sort of ambulatory bag of skin is carrying them around. They just care that they're, they're still there. Um, and so he investigated the Fafafine to see if they, how their role relates to childcare of nieces and nephews. And it's this benevolent uncle hypothesis is what it's called. The idea that having a childless uncle could particularly in times of famine be the difference between life and death for nephews and nieces and he found some evidence for that he also found an even cooler theory which is the sexy the sexy sisters hypothesis um the idea that these genes that make men more likely to be homosexual might also if they find themselves into their way into a woman make them more likely to reproduce um unfortunately the way that they showed this was uh in grandmothers so the sexy grandmothers is sort of it, it, a bit less of a frisson, um, but the advantage of grandmothers is they finish their reproductions. They looked at the grandmothers of Fafafine, um to see if they, who presumably carried the genes that might have led to the Fafafine and to homosexuality, if they had more children, and they found that they did. Um, none of this is a complete explanation for the semi-paradox of homosexuality, but it's sort of, it's sort of getting there. And as you said, it's it's a, a fascinating example of how societal boxes can, in a way, change everything and also, in a way, change nothing at all. Mm. Now, you mentioned the gay penguins, so I think people would like us to, to, to go there. They're, they're quite famous at a, a zoo in Germany, aren't they? Yeah, Bremerhaven. And they're... I mean, bless them. They're, they're very Northern European about them. They're, they've they've got these um, these semi-endangered penguins, um, and they were trying to breed them, and nothing was happening. And then they discovered that they were gay, and they got I think six or seven gay couples um, among the penguins. Um, and they were obviously fine with their penguins' lifestyle choices, but it was it was a bit annoying if you're trying to breed penguins. Um, penguins are marvelous because. The Victorians latched onto them. They latched onto birds in general as this example of moral probity um, because they believed that birds paired up in these monogamous relationships that were an example to humans. There's a, a fantastic sermon from the Victorian times um, titled Be Thou Like the Dunnock um, in imploring us to behave in this sort of avian monogamous way. And unfortunately, one of the first... Um, surveys of penguins went down in the early 1900s um, to have a look at penguins and discovered the awful, awful truth about penguins. Um, the guy wrote a large number of the findings in Greek so that the common man wouldn't read them. Um, but uh, his cr the, the word that really, the, the phrase that really struck me was, he said, no crime is too low for these penguins. Um, the, the, the penguins were sort of roving bands of young penguins shagging anything. Um, uh, necrophilia. It, necrophilia. <laughs> um, the, uh, re reciprocal homosexuality was absolutely there all the time. But yeah, necrophilia. Um, I mean, we now find um, 
There was an amazing study of, uh, of seals having sex with penguins, which was very sad for the penguins because they got eaten at the end. But uh, there's, yeah, so, so penguins get up to all sorts. Um, if you're, obviously, it doesn't take a penguin having gay sex to validate homosexuality um, as being natural um, and being something that, that, that's right. But I think, um, I think people take some comfort from the fact that there's, whenever we look at species, we find homosexuality popping up. Um, and I, I think it shows that nature's nature's completely cool with this. Yeah, I um, I had my own experience looking at, at animals. I went I, where I was at university. We had a little lake, and um, every year the same thing would play out, which is the coots would have relatively few children, but they would survive, and they would be very much coupled up, and you'd always see the pair of them. The more hens would have more. The dads seem a bit less involved, maybe. I don't know. This is only this is one lake. Um, but uh, And so a few would bump off. But, but, you know, each year a couple would make it to adulthood. The ducks. I mean, I felt terrible for the female ducks. Um, there were a lot more male ducks, and we eventually realised why, uh, which is that unfortunately a lot of the female ducks were getting drowned having sex on the lake. Um, and then she, the ones that did make it, uh, she, and I say sex, it was very much rape, um, if you can have that in the animal kingdom. But anyway, the ones that did have children would have loads and they would mostly die and she'd be a single mum on her own. And I maybe this illustrates some of, of what you were saying. I don't know how typical that is for those, for those <laughs> I'm, types I'm, of I'm getting a, yeah, a vision of your how hard you worked at university. Yeah, well, we walked around the lake a lot. There's breaks from revision, um, obviously. Ducks are, yeah, I mean, ducks are definitely not a, a model for human society. They engage in these things called rape flights um, where they essentially wear down the uh, female duck. There is an absolutely classic paper um, by... So another person who should have been doing his work but was busy watching ducks um, was the director of the Rotterdam Natural History Museum. And he was sitting in his room and he heard a bang at the window. And it was a duck that had been on a rape flight, or rather being chased in a rape flight, had crashed into his window, died... He went down and observed. He realised that the duck was a mallard and that the one chasing it was a mallard and wrote this paper which was called, the uh, I think the title was The First Observed Case of Homosexual Necrophilia in the Mallard Duck. Um, <laughs> yeah, look, look du- ducks, ducks are completely, completely filthy. <laughs> and what other things can we learn looking at animals? I mean, it may, might not apply to us, but what are the other interesting? Um, I think I've... Do, an, animals provide um, very good... Good anecdotes. Um, my my concern, and I very much avoided them in the, the book largely, um, because they can do whatever you want. I mean, Jordan Peterson can ev- evoke lo- lobsters and then make points about human hierarchies. Um, there's been a big sort of fight in... Um, uh, in in sex um, and particularly popularizing popularization of sex between uh, whether we're like bonobos or chimpanzees and um, bonobos the bonobo advocates would describe bonobo society as this place where sex is everywhere where people where bonobos say hello with sex where women are on an, or females are on a I'm tr- desperately trying not to anthropomorphize uh, on an equal status to men uh, men oh jesus uh, to males um and they have sex all the time and they're lovely and they're free loving and there's lesbians and all of this stuff um and that's what human society should be like because bonobos are equally related to us as chimpanzees who have different societies um 
actually, if you speak to primat- primatologists, they get quite annoyed about this. They say, well, look, quite often the, the, you, there are male hierarchies. The females might be offering sex to sort of avoid getting beaten up. It's not quite the, the lovely matriarchy that you think it is. Um, I have, yeah, I, I have tried to stay away from them as direct analogies for humans because I think humans are so, so, so different um, and behave in such different ways that it, it obscures often more than it illuminates. And how much has this all changed? Um, you know, we've had a sexual revolution in the 1960s and 70s. Um, the world seems, we hope, to have changed rapidly. We've got, you know, in, in, on a cultural level, we've got a lot more women working, um, you know, being successful, though not as many as as, as we might like, um, reaching the highest echelons of, of, of industries. Um, how much is that changing? Um, I mean, I think it's, it's, change, it's changing a lot. Obviously, it's changing a lot. And, you know, things like contraception are changing a lot. And we have proof throughout our throughout human history that society can we can create the society that we want and we're doing that um i don't think we're going to escape the fundamental psychological uh i would argue evolved psychological mechanisms we have whereby inevitably sex is going to be more complicated for women to use a separate do you remember the story cat person did you read it and i found i found it interesting i i thought i thought it was brilliant um an absolutely brilliant story um and what it was for those who haven't read it was a young woman's essentially internal monologue as she was dating a man and then having a very awkward sexual experience which she sort of went through half through obligation um and all of this is going on um and it was brilliant a brilliant evocation of a voice that's not often heard and it was obviously for exactly the same reasons it was a great piece of feminist writing um but and there is a but to my mind i found it strange that people who might cleave towards the idea that there's no difference between how males and females approach sex would then laud this thing that seems to be entirely about the difference between how males and females approach sex i'm, I'm going to instantly generalize but you don't get many men who whilst they're you know naked about to have sex are having these um major internal monologues about oh am i going through this just for you know societal reasons do i just not want to be impolite um sex has to be more complicated for women for all of the reasons we've gone through and that shouldn't be surprising and that was yet another example of it um i mean one of the great things is a study that found that um Men regret the times that they that they don't have sex and could have. Women regret the times that they do have sex. Um, there's a lovely interview with John Betjeman uh, towards the end of his life where he was sort of it was this it was brilliant because it was this serious highbrow BBC cultural interview and they were doing a big retrospective of his life and they said to him, "What do you regret?" And he sort of looked into the distance as the wind ruffled his hair and said, "I wish I'd had more sex." Um, and I think that's uh, that's fundamentally going to be there until we evolve out of it. Um, but that that says nothing about the society that we create, can create. As you know, as something as, if we can do something as fundamental as introduce monogamy and monogamous marriage as the way that we organise ourselves, then I think we can we can change in lots of other ways. One thing that your book mentioned that might also apply to cat person is the idea 
that men consistently overrate how attractive they are and how desired they are and hence why they think it's perfectly possible even though the whole of their lives has convinced them this would never happen but that someone would yeah. come up to them in the street and say let's have sex tonight. I mean, the, the, the innate optimism of men. Look, I mean, first of all, there is no way to get through being a teenage boy unless you have an just unquenchable optimism about your sexual prospects. Men generally, and this has been shown time and time again, and for instance, speed dating studies, overrate the extent to which women find them attractive. Um, they overinterpret smiles, politeness, all of these things. Um, and there's an obviously good reason for it, um, which is that if I as a man have sex, if I make the mistake, if I make the error of thinking that you want to have sex with me, then that's embarrassing, but that's fine. That's It's better for me to make that mistake and then occasionally be correct than to miss out on the opportunity of having sex with... I'm sorry, I somehow personalised <laughs> this. Than to miss out on the lovely opportunity of having sex with you for the sake of making a social mistake. Yeah. For a woman for whom sex has so many more costs, that's obviously not the case. Yeah. Thank you very, very much, um, Tom, for talking about your book so well. And it's called X and Y, because I don't think we said that right at the beginning. But um, just Y spelt W-H-Y, yes. if you're going on Amazon. Thank you very much. Thank you.